$3.50, the nationwide average cost of a gallon of milk. 26200 the federal poverty line for a family of four. $2.99, that's the average cost of a gallon of milk in Atlanta. Zero, the number of states or counties in the United States where a minimum wage full-time worker can afford a two-bedroom apartment. $4.16, the average cost of a gallon of milk in Chicago. 31%, that's how much the real value of the minimum wage has declined since 1968. $3.69, that's the average cost of a gallon of milk in Milwaukee. Melissa, why do you keep quoting the price of milk? <laughs> because I'm a little ashamed. Because just a few days ago, uh, I didn't know it. When you and I talked with our first guest this week, she asked, what is the cost of a gallon of milk? Dorian, honestly, I didn't know. Mm. And my not knowing helped me to better understand the system of poverty. Melissa, I didn't know either, but I want to hear more about all of this. So let's dig in because it's time for a system check of poverty. On this episode, we talk with Aisha Yandoro, Chief Executive Officer of Springboard to Opportunities. And we'll get our final word from Tiana Gaines-Turner, wife, mom, and full-time worker living in poverty in Philadelphia. I'm Dorian Warren. And I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. And this is System Check. So Dorian, I learned something recently. My grandma Rosa was cold during the winter of 1960. Okay, so 1960, she was cold. All right, go on. I'm listening. Listen, I actually discovered this about my grandmother, who who's passed on now. But I was reading a March 1960 Ebony Magazine story. Ebony Magazine. Listen, it, it's a it's a story that you know that I've read before because it's this three page spread, and it's an article titled. Richmond's Genius Twins. And it's about my dad, Bill Harris, William, and his twin brother, Wes. They were seniors in high school. And this story was really about them and all of what they were doing in school. Now, as adult men, right, my dad and his brother, they have 10 adult children between them. And almost all of us have that 1960 Ebony article somewhere in our house. You know, we think all of us is like, we're the children of the twins, <laughs> right? Like, these are the genius kids who graduated from a segregated high school in Richmond, Virginia. They were the first in the family to go to college. And both of them became history-making college professors and both have a legacy of civil rights activism. Melissa, I've heard this story before, and it's quite a story, but tell me why this what does this have to do with your grandmother being cold? Right. So this is my whole point. You know the story. I talk about this story. But I noticed something that I haven't noticed before reading it a million times. When I went back, let me read this to you. Quote, their summer income, which their mother says goes to buy three tons of coal to heat the house in the winter. 
was curtailed last year when Wesley attended an eight-week seminar at Howard University in D.C. and William a like session at North Carolina College in Durham. So, Dorian, I've always missed this. Why? How, how did you miss that? Right, right. Because it's, <laughs> I've always thought it was just a story about the boys. But what mm. I realized is it's actually a story about Grandma Rosa. Here she was raising her five children alone because my grandfather had died suddenly when he was very young. Grandma Rosa was a domestic worker. She was a talented seamstress. And she was poor. Not middle class, not working class. She was poor, black working single mom in the Jim Crow South. And she had brilliant children. So when my dad and his twin brother won scholarships to a summer college prep program, Grandma Rosa made sure they went, even though them going meant they couldn't have summer jobs. And them not having summer jobs meant not enough coal to heat the house. And Grandma Rosa had arthritis and she sewed for a living and she knew she was gonna be cold. And she knew that it wasn't going to be the last cold winter because her children were going to go and pursue their dreams. And Dorian, whatever sacrifices I have ever made for my children, I have never had to face a choice like this. I've never had to be cold so that my children can learn. And I just kept thinking about Grandma Rosa, of her insight, her strength, her willingness to sacrifice, her impeccable ethics, her judgment of how smart and how loving she was. And that's what made me embarrassed not to know the price of milk. No one ever knows how much milk costs. I have a two-year-old. I don't know how much milk costs. I know if my child needs milk, I go buy the milk, period. The women that I work with can tell you how much milk costs at three different stores. That was Aisha Yandoro, Chief Executive Officer of Springboard to Opportunities. She made both Melissa and me very emotional more than once during her conversation with System Check this week. Mm-hmm. We were each moved by the stories Yandoro told us about her work with Magnolia Mothers Trust. Now, the trust is the first guaranteed income project in the country to focus explicitly on racial and gender justice. And full disclosure, I've been a strong supporter of this initiative through my work with the Economic Security Project. Magnolia Mothers Trust gives $1,000 a month for 12 months to extremely low-income Black women living in federally subsidized affordable housing and with no strings attached. Yanduro began the program in 2018 as a small pilot with just 20 women in Jackson, Mississippi. Today, there are 110 women receiving $1,000 a month for a full year. And it was amazing to hear her talk about this. But Yandora started talking about the price of milk when I asked her a purposely provocative question. Why give poor women cash? Isn't it better to teach a woman to fish rather than give her a fish? We already know how to fish. (laughs) And whenever I honestly, whenever someone asks me that, my flippant response is always to ask them, how much does milk cost? No one ever knows how much milk costs. The women that I work with can tell you how much milk costs at three different stores. So they know how to fish. They just need an opportunity to get to the pond where there are fish. So Melissa, based on the story you just told, I know your grandma Rosa knew how to fish, as did mine. My grandmother used to always say that she didn't grow up poor. She grew up po because she couldn't afford the O or the R. 
And of course, you didn't need the fancy financial literacy programs that much of philanthropy and do-gooders would prescribe as the, the magic bullock solution to poverty. She always taught me, earn a nickel, save two cents. Listen. She knew how to fish. She already knew how to fish. She just, she just didn't have the power alone to get out of poverty. And she, like so many black women in America, she wasn't deemed trustworthy by the powers that be. Which brings us back to the genius of the Magnolia Mother's Trust. It's not only a trust in the legal sense of serving as a trustee organization that holds and shares financial resources. It's also a trust in the sense that the program acts on a firm belief in the reliability, in the honesty, and the strength of these poor Black women. The program trusts them to know how to make best use of the cash that the program makes available. The work started in 2018, where we did a pilot with 20 women. In that first year, what it was that we learned blew our minds. You know, it was the first work that it actually really focused on individuals in extreme poverty. Like I said, our families make less than $12,000 annually. So we were able to really add so much rich context into the data as far as what individuals do with money once they have it. You know, our families did exactly what we expected them to, quite frankly. They paid off debt. They went back to school. They were able to prepare more nutritious meals at home. And the piece of it, though, in the first year that we had not accounted for, quite frankly, was the joy and the lightness that individuals were able to manifest by virtue of having the breathing room. So we now have 110 women receiving $1,000 a month for 12 months under the backdrop of this pandemic, under the backdrop of this economic crisis. So, you know, what we are learning is that cash matters. Cash is important. We should give people money. We should give poor people money and trust them. And that, you know, our paternalistic systems and policies are not necessary. We don't have to give individuals programs and say you have to do X, Y, Z. We can actually trust all people. And had there been a Magnolia Mother's Trust available in 1959, (laughs) my grandma Rosa might not have had to be cold. So it's healthy or safe for us to shield ourselves from the reality that individuals are poor, not because of some moral failing on their own, but because of the way we've designed these systems. If I have to look at the systems that are keeping individuals poor, I also have to look at the systems by which I am benefiting from. And a lot of us are not prepared to really take off the mask and do that deep, soul-searching, hard work. So what is the system of American poverty? Now, poverty has an official definition. The federal government determines a national poverty line or threshold. Currently, for a family of four, that poverty line is $26,200 a year. Where did this number come from? Well, a 55-year-old formula developed by civil servant Molly Orshansky for the Social Security Administration. And in her work decades ago, she identified How much of a cost to feed a family of four based on average food prices of standard items? And then she multiplied that number by three. Okay, so now I actually get the systemic importance of the cost of a gallon of milk. Yes, exactly. But but, but using a standardized grocery budget to determine poverty is problematic to say the least, Melissa, because five decades ago, food was a much bigger part of a household budget. In 1955, the data Orshansky was using 
food was roughly a third of families' budgets. Now, today, food is on average about 10% of Americans' personal budgets. And you have to add in the cost of housing and healthcare and childcare and transportation. Those are all much more consequential than a gallon of milk. And that's only one reason among many why nearly all experts and advocates believe that the federal poverty line is much too low. And I, it also just occurs to me that a line doesn't quite fit the experience of living in poverty. I mean, if you make $50 more a month, boom, you're not officially poor. But even with $50 more a month, you still very much feel the sting of poverty. So, Melissa, this is why many analysts, advocates, and policymakers don't even use the federal poverty line. And in fact, they double the official poverty threshold to $52,400 a year for a family of four. And they do this because they know these numbers don't even begin to capture the full extent of poverty in this country. We all know that just because you're over that official poverty line, it doesn't mean that you don't face food insecurity or struggle with inadequate housing or frankly, just the lived experience of poverty. That's much different than the bureaucratic definition of poverty. Whenever someone says to me, well, you know, my SNAP is not enough to get me through the month. And I was like, well, but why? And when we get to the but why is, well, your SNAP is not enough to get you through the month because someone who's not even connected to your community or to the reality of your life has decided that you as a person with three kids only need so much money to get you through the month. In this country, when we talk about systems and systems that need to be checked and systems that are just quite frankly really fucked up, at the end of all of that, it's Black women and it's Black women labor that has been exploited and it's Black women and their children who have been victimized at every turn. And so here, Aisha Yandoro is underlining your point, Dorian. The human experience of housing, feeding, clothing, transporting, educating, and keeping a family healthy, it is much more complex and multifaceted than simply multiplying groceries by three. Some of that complexity is visible in the statistics about poverty. In 2018, a full two years before the COVID-19 pandemic, healthcare expenses forced 8 million Americans into poverty. Just about one third of families with young children are poor, and the extraordinary cost of childcare is one reason why. Now in most states, preschool costs nearly twice as much a year as college tuition. Listen, don't I know it. And even though many poor children are eligible for federal child care assistance, only one in six eligible kids receive that assistance because our lawmakers don't set aside enough funds to fully support the program. And listen, it is worth mentioning that even if college is less expensive than child care, it isn't hardly cheap. I mean, young people from poor families have an extremely hard time getting into selective four-year colleges. So a lot of these young people end up at private, for-profit schools. And these schools have low graduation rates and high student loan rates. So poor students find themselves burdened with massive student loan debt, but not able to access high-paying jobs. And I want to be clear, when I say massive, I only mean massive relative to sort of the situation of poverty, because actually college students from poor families take the lowest total student loan debt, but they're the most likely to default. They actually find themselves more poor just for trying to get a college education. 
And this speaks to the question of why American poverty is so deeply intertwined with health care, with child care, with education, and of course, Melissa, with the cost of housing. Every year, millions of Americans are evicted, have to double up with family, or, or they experience weeks or months of homelessness. All of this while the majority of families who are eligible for rental assistance don't receive it because most housing programs are underfunded. And it's this complex system of poverty. It's why Aisha's Magnolia Mother's Trust initiative is so important. I went to cash as the answer because at the end of the day, cash matters. Housing is important. Food is important. All of those things are important. But cash allows you the agency to show up and make decisions for yourself and your life. And so many individuals who live in poverty where there's the intersection of these various systems and these policies, they are not allowed agency. And when you are not allowed agency, you are not allowed dignity. When you're not allowed dignity, you're not allowed joy. When you're not allowed joy, you're not allowed the opportunity to hope for a better future. Cash allows for all of that to happen and not even massive amounts of cash. So the individuals that we work with aren't even trying to get rich. They don't even talk about wanting to get wealthy. They actually have bought into the idea of more money, more problems. They just want enough money that at the end of the day, they can pay their bills. They can go on vacation. They cannot stress. Emergencies can come up and they can know how to deal with those. So see, I think Americans, we actually get this when we are the ones smacked by a sudden jolt of system-generated poverty. We know that what we need is cash. When the COVID-19 pandemic shut down the American economy this spring, I mean, policymakers knew immediately that they needed to free up cash. Congress did not fund some mentoring programs. They didn't send grants to nonprofits to counsel Americans about being resilient in quarantine. They didn't send out vouchers for a yoga mat. Congress wrote checks and they mailed them to us. They froze the federal tax penalties on early withdrawal from retirement accounts so that middle-class Americans could tap their own savings for cash. Now, granted, the the checks that Congress sent were definitely not big enough and they did not send enough checks, but the inside at least was right. What people needed was money. But Aisha Yanduro shared with us just how hard it is to convince donors that what poor Black mothers need is cash. Our systems of poverty relief rarely offer poor people the autonomy we want for ourselves. Instead, governments and charities, nonprofits, they typically try to address poverty by fixing the assumed deficiencies of poor people. We blame a so-called culture of poverty, and we place limits, restrictions, and conditions on aid. Let's just take an example. SNAP benefits, sometimes called food stamps. The government decides what poor people and poor families can buy at the grocery store. Cereal? Yes. Flintstone vitamins? No. Soda? Yeah. Beer? Mm-mm, no. Frozen beef patties? Yes. A prepared hamburger? No. Tuna? Yes. Diapers or tampons? No. For any of our listeners who received a COVID-19 relief check, I just want you to ask yourself, how would you feel if you could not have purchased toilet paper, or hand soap with those dollars. 
Yeah, Melissa, and and these constraints, right? These policy constraints made by policymakers, people decided that those were constraints. These constraints are baked into the ways that we think about helping the poor. So when Aisha Yandora was working to launch the Magnolia Mothers Trust, she had to convince grant makers and philanthropists, who by the way are wealthy, mostly white, and mostly not from Mississippi, she had to convince them to trust poor black Southern women. Trying to make that case meant that Aisha ran headlong into the infuriating stereotypes and assumptions that drive our systemic responses to poverty. And Aisha Yandoral shared with us how hard it is to convince donors that what poor Black mothers need is money. So once again, it's deservedness. You already have this little bit. You already have these vouchers. You already have these subsidies. What more are you asking for? Why aren't you happy? We have satisfied what it is we feel that you deserve. And then also it was the ideal of not trusting individuals. So individuals like, oh, you just can't give them money because they are going to drink it away. They're going to drug it away. One donor asked me, what are you going to do about all the unwanted pregnancies? And I was like, what unwanted pregnancies? So, you know, we can Uh say unplanned, but we can't say unwanted because how are you to who are you to make determinations about how many children are an acceptable amount of children for a family? So, you know, that is all the loveliness that we had to deal with before we even launched the work. I am trying to keep my power and keep on focus because I know the work that I am doing. And when you are honest about having a conversation about partnership and collaboration, then we can talk. But you're not going to continue to extract all that I have when I know how hard we sacrifice and how many tears I have cried in bathrooms after funders have said some shit to me about my people. No, we're just not going to do that. This is 2020. Y'all are going to get all the smoke you came for because I'm tired. (laughs) And Melissa, when Aisha said that. Listen, I remember (laughs) because we all just cried for a minute, like rage, tears. I was thinking what so many people must have said about my grandma. All those people who didn't even know the price of milk while she was fighting through the pain of arthritis to thread a needle in a cold house just so her boys could go to college. I just was so mad. Melissa, I'm still furious. I'm still mad. And I'm mad that one out of three black girls and boys, one out of two black boys born into poor households will remain poor throughout their adult lives. But Aisha Yandoral is still working. And her goal is to expand her program from 130 women served to the 400 women and counting on the waiting list for a chance to live a life of opportunity, a chance to live a life of possibility, and yes, a chance to thrive. So our plan is to continue the work that we are doing, not only here in Mississippi, but to continue to partner with others as they are rolling out their guaranteed income work. My imagination is only limited by my financial resources. So as individuals liberate their capital this way, we will continue to expand and grow our work because the needs are real and the needs have been elevated as we are seeing more and more families being pushed into poverty as we continue to grapple with this 
pandemic and this economic crisis. So my over the rainbow dreams is that, you know, we figure out a way to give guaranteed income to those individuals who truly need it and that we get to a place where we are divorcing the ideal of moralism from poverty and we recognize poverty is what it is. It is an intentional disease that we have designed and just as we have intentionally designed it, we can intentionally design a new system that doesn't create generations of impoverished individuals. Yes, yes we can create a new system. Okay, system checkers, stick with us because we have a very special final word coming up next. I feel like right now that we need to have a conversation on the things that are wrong. The cliff effect. Why is it that when a person does enter the job force and make just maybe 50 cents or a quarter over, they are cut? Their food stamps are cut dramatically. Their medical may be cut and their tan benefits are taken away. This is Tiana Gaines-Turner. She's a married, working mother, living in poverty in Philadelphia. And you just heard a portion of her testimony from July 9th, 2014, when she was speaking before the U.S. House of Representatives Budget Committee. It was chaired by then Congressman Paul Ryan, the Republican from Wisconsin. Now, I'd first met Tiana a year before in 2013. She was a guest on Melissa Harris Perry, the weekend cable news program that I hosted. And during her time on the show, she actually had an opportunity to meet with Representative Barbara Lee, who was at the time sitting on Ryan's committee. Representative Lee was so impressed by Gaines Turner that she said she would ask Congressman Ryan to invite Tiana as a witness. And it took an entire year, but Representative Lee continued to push and eventually Tiana's voice was included in the committee hearings. On July 9th, 2014, she became the only person living in poverty to provide testimony about her lived experience during Congressman Ryan's hearings. Now, over the years, I have kept in touch with Tiana and like all of us, she's had her highs and lows. And one of her big eyes was that she had another opportunity to testify before Congress, this time in 2018, during the Congressional Black Caucus hearings on the 50th anniversary of the Kerner Commission report. So this week, when Tiana joined System Check, I asked her about those experiences. You've now testified before Congress twice. Are they listening? Two words, hell no. That's just as simple as that. Excuse my French, but not at all. They don't get it. They're not listening. They're not trying to get it at this point. You know, if you'd asked me that question a while ago, I was a little bit more sympathetic. Like, oh, well, maybe they're trying to understand. And now I'm going to just be blunt and just say, hell no, they're not. Because, and the reason why I say hell no is because you have so many people who are still struggling, who are still trying to make ends meet. There is no light at the end of the tunnel for so many people. Now, Tiana joined us from her office computer in a large common room at the nonprofit where she works in Philadelphia, Eddie's House. In her role as housing stabilization specialist, Tiana works directly with other Philadelphia residents, people of color who are struggling to make ends meet in a hostile system. 
Tiana also worked at the polls this year. She was working in Philadelphia, as she has for many elections, serving as an election judge and making sure her fellow community members had a safe place to cast their votes. So I asked her whether she felt more afraid of potential illness or potential financial ruin as a result of COVID-19. It's about both. Because for one, I, we both know that communities of color and minority, we don't get the same treatment as you would if you weren't a minority. I'm just going to be honest. So, you know, for me to have to, because I've had that scare about four times now where I've had to go get tested, um, be exposed to COVID. I have small children at home, a small child at home. I have children with medical disabilities. I have a mother with medical disabilities, I have my own disabilities. So, you know, I have people that I work with have disabilities. So, you know, COVID is is real and it's not whereas though I am afraid of it because I'm not really afraid of anything. But it's just that, you know, I am afraid that if I am sitting in line and I'm waiting to be serviced near one of my children and someone comes in with grade A insurance or a different skin tone that they will be seen before me and that their life will seem more worthy than mine's and my family and my loved ones and my coworkers. And that's just the blunt honest truth. Now, I've never forgotten the most important lesson Tiana taught me. When it comes to policymaking, nothing about us without us. And that is why Tiana Gaines-Turner has this week's final word. The person who needs to be at the table is, is me, that grandmother who's raising her grandkids, the soldier who is now out, you know, having to deal with PTSD and not getting the support that they need. You know, the young black man who is trying to find his way in America, who is trying to understand the different challenges that he faces and being able to be encouraged to be the best thing that he can be. The us at the table is the young, you know, teachers right now who are doing virtual learning, who, you know, some of them are being forced to go back to work and back into the classroom in different states, but they're putting themselves at risk to take COVID-19 back to their own families. The us at the table is the doctors and the nurses who are right now fighting COVID, who you know are, are treating patients every day and leaving their kids and their families at home so that they can treat other people, but yet don't have the right PPE that they need to do it. You know, the us is the trash man who's out just collecting garbage every day, who does not have the proper PPE to do it. The us is the laborers who, you know, was working in the factories right now and the, the person who's standing across you in the Walmart parking lot or the Target, you know, that's the us that needs to be at the table because at the end of the day, again, they're still putting themselves at risk and they're not just putting themselves at risk for COVID, they're putting themselves at risk for life. And the reason why I say that is because at the end of the day, once COVID is over, they'll still be standing at that minimum wage job waiting for an unemployment check that seems has never come, you know, who is trying to make a difference for themselves. The person at the table is my mother, who was a single parent who did the best that she could work in multiple jobs um, at one point in time. And then she finally decided to stop working to stay at home with her child. 
So this way I could, you know, wouldn't be a latchkey kid and that I can come home and sit to the table and do my homework across the table with my mother. The caseworkers and, and the county assistant workers, those are the people who need to be at the table. And just one more thing. Tiana, how much does a gallon of milk cost? Where I live at, a gallon of milk is about $4 and I want to say 69 cents, something between, so almost maybe $5. That's a wrap for this episode. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. I'm Dorian Warren. And you've been listening to System Check. System Check is a project of The Nation, hosted by me, Melissa Harris-Perry, and Dorian Warren, and produced by Sophia Steinert-Evoy. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Didi Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Erin O'Mara is president of the nation. And our theme music is by Brooklyn-based artist and producer, Jackery. Support for System Check comes from Omidyar Network, a social change venture that is reimagining how capitalism should work. Learn more about their efforts to recenter our economy around individuals, community, and societal well-being at omidyar.com. Now, the best way to show your love for this show is to subscribe online to the nation's print and digital magazine at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. Join the fight for the once unthinkable progressive ideas that are now mainstream. 80% off for our podcast listeners at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. And as always, if you like what you hear, Please rate, review, and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 